Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in John chapters 13 through 16, which is a little bit of a departure from what the church has in Come Follow Me for this week, because the church is outlining 14 through 17. But as a reminder, last week we talked about John 17, the great intercessory prayer. So if you're looking for John chapter 17 this week, you got to go back to last week. We covered that at the end. Now, last week's podcast was Thursday. That was the day of his atoning sacrifice. That was the day they have the Passover meal, the day he has the Last Supper. The reason we're doing this this week is because the spirit of John is almost always a let's go back and see what we missed book. John's been doing that from the very beginning. He just like a light went on after the resurrection, and John, thinking back on actual episodes he remembered, now sees added significance. So John's book is 21 chapters long, and yet the Last Supper is 13, 14, 15, 16, and basically 17, the intercessory prayer, before they head out to Gethsemane. So do you see why we want to take a look at that separately from the Synoptic Gospels? Matthew doesn't mention the washing of the feet, nor does Mark or Luke, and yet John saw that as one of the most significant events of the Savior as he has come into Jerusalem triumphantly. He is the king, and yet he's going to grab a bowl and a towel and wash their feet, and then he's going to teach them. Jesus is going to bounce around five different themes And Mike and I will separate his teachings into different subjects because Jesus wanted to take one more moment with his 12. So we're going to connect these thematically. Theme number one is Jesus wants to comfort them and teach them about the comforter. Number two, he's going to add some clarification about his role as Messiah. They need to understand who he is. So we'll jump into that theme second. Number three, the Savior is going to teach them about the two loves, love of God and love of the fellow man and how they manifest themselves. Love of God will manifest itself in obedience. If ye love me, keep my commandments. He's going to say that in this sermon. And then love of neighbor is going to manifest itself in service. And he's going to illustrate that before he ever even starts teaching. He's going to give a commentary on love with a bowl of water and a towel. And then theme number four is he's going to prepare them, not just for that night. He's going to prepare them for the events of that night and what follows. They have responsibilities to bear off the kingdom when he's gone, and so he's going to prepare them. And the last thing, which is a theme I want to mention, but we will not talk about it in this podcast because we mentioned it in our last one, is he will introduce the sacrament. So we're really going to cover four themes. Then when we're done with the Last Supper, Mike and I want to take some time on the doctrine of the atonement to teach what he accomplished in that garden and why it means so much to all of us. So those are kind of some major themes of what we're going to talk about So theme number one, he's trying to lift up their spirits and comfort them, which is so interesting because he's starting to feel the weight of his atonement. 
Earlier in John chapter 12, he had said, Now is my soul troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So he's feeling the weight of the atonement. But one of the things he wants to do is comfort them and teach them about the comforter. Look what he says. John chapter 14, verse 18 reads as follows. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And I love the English King James, but the Greek is even better. In the Greek, the Lord is basically saying, I will not leave you orphans. It literally is orphanus. That word is powerful because in the Hebrew Bible, Jehovah is the God of widows and orphans. I think that's so important. We have a father. We are not orphaned. Even if you're born in this world and you don't know your biological parents, you have a heavenly father and Jesus is your father through the covenant. Because of the covenant that we have made, we become sons and daughters of Christ and we are not orphans. This statement in, in John 14, 18 is so powerful for another reason. This is going to be one of their hardest nights of their life. And really, they're not really going to feel peace, I don't believe, until they see him again on the third day. But he tells them there, I'm not going to leave you orphans. Along that line, Mike, I love back in chapter 13, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, I cannot come. So now I say to you, and then he teaches them. But I love that combination that I won't leave you orphans. And then he calls them little children. You can't come where I'm going, but I will always be with you. I want to add verse 1 of chapter 14. He starts this whole chapter with, let not your heart be troubled. In verse 27 of 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now those two have to be combined. The reason I can navigate through this life without trouble or terror or being afraid is because he is with me. He is always with me. I am not orphaned. I think that's a beautiful thought. In the midst of this, he talks about a comforter. And this teaching is throughout, but I'm just going to look at a couple verses. Verse uh, 16 of chapter 14. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And then go over to verse 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. That word for comforter, in its original Greek context, the word is parakletos, and that has a much richer meaning than simply comforter. Another way to translate it would be advocate or helper or even counselor. You see, in a Greek setting, the idea of a parakletos would have been very familiar with anyone associated with the law, because in Greek legal practice, a parakletos was a person who provided assistance and counsel if you were in trouble, if you had legal issues, you had to have an advocate, somebody who could stand for you in court and help you to navigate the complexities of the legal system. And so this is really important because as we understand the Holy Spirit as a parakletos, it helps to highlight the importance of the absolute necessity navigating this difficult life. We have to have help. 
being an orphan would be so horrible. You're completely alone. And the Savior is essentially saying, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you a comforter. I love another title that's implied here, comforter, counselor, guide, all of those things. I would add fixer. One of the great roles of Christ through the Holy Ghost is to fix the memory of the pains of our past. It is one of the great gifts of God that heaven once obtained will work backwards and erase the memory of the pain and turn it into a blessing. In John chapter 16, he says it this way, a woman when she is in travail hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Now, I know he's trying to comfort them for that night, that I'll be with you, and tonight's going to be a scary night. But this is a great commentary on why the Holy Ghost is so important in our lives, that when the blessings of the gospel are received, they erase the memory of the pain. Now, I've watched my wife give birth 10 times. I've watched her go through labor, and twice without an epidural. I've watched her in excruciating pain. But the moment they hand that baby to her, it's like she completely forgets. The joy of that moment swallows up the pain of getting there. And can I just testify that that's one of the reasons we call him the comforter, the fixer, the eraser of the memories. Heaven once obtained, whence the blessings are obtained, they will change the memory of the pain that we went through to get there. It's one of the great roles of the Holy Ghost, and I don't think we talk about it enough. When you get to the destination, you will not remember the anguish of the journey. The joy of the destination will turn the journey into joy as well. I really like the idea that uh, the Parakletos is an intercessor a legal assistant, an advocate, somebody who's running to our aid. In fact, a lot of times in scholarship, the Holy Spirit will be referred to as the paraclete. And so if you've ever heard that phrase and you've wondered, what is that? We're all talking about the same thing. Jesus is using this expression of an advocate or a helper or counselor, and that is translated into the English as a comforter. And all of those work. Now, It's not fully explained in the scriptures, but for some reason, the Holy Ghost did not operate in its fullness among the Jews during the years of the Savior's mortal ministry. Statements to the effect that the Holy Ghost did not come until after Jesus was resurrected must of necessity refer to that particular dispensation only. Because it's clear that the Holy Ghost was working in other dispensations. We've well, read even the old... in that one to some degree, right, Mike? Because you remember in Matthew chapter 16, he says, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So this is a complicated issue. And even in Jesus' day, the Holy Ghost was present to some degree. You know, the Bible dictionary even says that. It says that this has reference to the gift of the Holy Ghost not being present since the power of the Holy Ghost was operative during the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. Otherwise, nobody would have received a testimony of the truths being taught. I mean, that's right out of our Bible dictionary. So clearly you're right. The power was present. 
but the gift was not. Now, it's not really explained here. And so this is what Robert Millett says about this subject. He says, in the New Testament, the full powers and gifts of the Holy Ghost were not given in the old world Meridian Church until the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. Millet continues, while the bridegroom was present with his disciples in the flesh, he was their comforter. He was their revelator and their testator. He, meaning Jesus, was their light and life, their source of power and might. Hence, as long as Jesus was with his disciples, there was not a full need for them to have the constant companionship of the Spirit that there would have been after he left. But because of the vital role that the Spirit would play Later in their growth, development, and the expansion of the early Christian church, Jesus said, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's John 16, verse 7. And I really appreciate Robert Millett's commentary there. I know it can be kind of confusing, but big picture, what we have is the gift of the Holy Ghost is not with these individuals while Jesus is with them. But when he leaves, then the gift of the Holy Ghost will be manifest among the people that follow Jesus. And Mike, I love Bruce R. McConkie's explanation in New Witness for the Articles of Faith. He says there's a difference between the light of Christ, the power of the Holy Ghost, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he compared it to the light of Christ is like a foghorn calling out in the fog. I just know what direction I need to go. I can hear it over in that direction, but I don't see it. That's the light of Christ that kind of beckons to all of us to move in that direction. Then he compared the power of the Holy Ghost to lightning. It's a momentary flash of light that allows me to see enough to take a few steps forward. And then the third one, he compares to the sun at noonday. The gift of the Holy Ghost, he compares to the sun at noonday. There seems to be three entities that are working on me. A foghorn, a light of Christ that's pulling me, all of us, in the right direction. But then I need to see clearly enough to take a few steps forward. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. And do you remember what Moroni said in Moroni 10? By the power of the Holy Ghost, you can know the truth of all things. I can see far enough ahead to know that the church is true. Jesus is the Messiah, that these missionaries and what they're telling me are divine. But I don't see more than a few steps, and that's why I need the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so Jesus is saying, I need to go away so that you can have the gift of the Holy Ghost in addition to the power you've enjoyed. And I love the way he says it in John 16, verse 13. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, when you're ready, Bryce, when you do the things that invite him in fully, he will come and he'll teach you. There is a long process. It starts with a light of Christ which moved me in the right direction. Then I enjoy the power of the Holy Ghost, and then I can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But there's one more, and this is a very sacred subject, and we want to talk about it appropriately. In addition to the gift of the Holy Ghost, in John chapter 14, verse 16, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you 
another comforter. See, there's one more. There's another one that he may abide with you forever. Now, Joseph Smith clarified what that other comforter is, that everyone who comes unto him and is sanctified will see his face someday in his way. And I know some people take this subject way too far, and they become obsessed with it, and I would invite you not to do that. But there is something to be said in inspiring us to receive all that God would like to give us in His time, and He'll choose when and where. And we ought not to become preoccupied with that in an unhealthy way. Let him decide the when and the where and the how. But there is more that God is offering to his faithful saints than the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is another comforter. Joseph Smith spoke about this, that there's two comforters. The first is the Holy Ghost. The second is Jesus Christ. Both are spoken of in this discourse, and both are called the Spirit of Truth. And we really read this throughout this narrative in John, but it's also in section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And both of these comforters are promised to the apostles. This is what Joseph Smith said. He said, quote, The other comforter spoken of is a subject of great interest, and perhaps understood by few of this generation. After a person has great faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and is baptized for the remission of his sins, and receives the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, which is the first comforter, then let him continue to humble himself before God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and living by every word of God. And the Lord will soon say to him, Son, thou shalt be exalted. When the Lord has thoroughly proved him, and finds that that man is determined to serve him at all hazards, then... The man will find his calling and election made sure. Then it will be his privilege to receive the other comforter, which the Lord has promised the saints, as is recorded in the testimony of John in chapter 14, from the 12th to the 27th verses. Now what is the other comforter? It is no more nor less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and this is the sum and substance of the whole matter that when any man obtains the last comforter, he will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him or to appear unto him from time to time, and even he will manifest the Father to him, and they will take up their abode with him, and the visions of the heavens will be open unto him, and the Lord will teach him face to face, and he may have a perfect knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And this is the state and place the ancient saints arrived at when they had such glorious visions. And then he goes on, people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. We read this also in the Book of Mormon, where Nephi says, I've seen the Lord. And then he says, oh, and so has Jacob. And then he says, and so has Isaiah. This is really a big part of the ascension literature that's out there circulating in the centuries before Christ and even after Christ. And this is one of the things that the early Christian church started to lament, that the visions and revelations were gone. We read about this in the DDK, where it talks about the church as an old and failing woman. We kind of read about this in the lamentations of the early bishops and what's called the Montanus controversy, when we have this individual named Montanus going around saying, where are the revelations in the church? And we've lost that. We've lost our way. And I think this is a really critical point of the gospel. Now, when I say this, I'm with Bryce. I want to temper it. I don't want to be like Judas and force my timing on the circumstance or run ahead of the Lord and dictate to him when things will be. 
my job as a follower of Jesus is simply to follow him. And I believe that what the Savior is saying here is that the humble followers of Jesus will one day meet the Savior. And he, in turn, will introduce them to the Father. I like this one in Doctrine and Covenants section 93, verse 1. This is probably the clearest one of them all. The Lord says in section 93, Verily thus saith the Lord, It shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me, and calleth on my name, and obeyeth my voice, and keepeth my commandments, shall see my face, and know that I am. Every soul. There's the requirements. You will see his face and know that I am. But I think we need to emphasize that it's on his timetable. And I like the idea that President Packer talked about. We are not to force spiritual things. Remember, the spirit go where it listeth. That's John 3. So the second that I think that I can dictate to the Lord and tell him what to do or dictate to the spirit, I think I'm out of line. So for me, I follow Jesus and the gifts will come when they come, and I receive them with gladness. I like that, Mike, and I really like how the Lord said it in section 88, verse 68. Listen carefully. I think this is the balance. Therefore, sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you. But listen to the rest of it. And it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. And if it's not till the next life, that's just fine. There's no special award for having it happen in this life. You don't need to stress that you end your life on this side of the veil, and that moment hasn't come yet to your expectation. Let it come in his own time, in his own way, and according to his own will. But I get, again testify, everyone who comes unto him and is sanctified will see his face someday in his way. Now, there are other things in this Last Supper that tie into that, and those who have eyes to see will see them. But please understand why we're not going to address them. So there's topic number one. Jesus wants to comfort them and teach them about the comforter. Now, topic number two is this is his last teaching moment with the 12, and they are now going to be in charge. They need to know his role in the plan of salvation. They need to clearly understand who he is. So there's a few things in this Last Supper that he continues to address the role he plays in the plan of salvation, and that the only way to come unto the Father is by following Him. So as His role as Messiah, we're going to look at the text where He talks about Himself being the true vine. Go to John 15. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, 
ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into a fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it will be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. There's that glorification again. As they do the Father's will, the Father is glorified. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Big picture, the way I see this is this is an interconnected relationship between the followers of Christ and also Jesus and his Father. So the love of the Father is manifest to the disciples as they are connected to Jesus. Now, there is no doubt that they had access to all of the scriptures about trees and vineyards that we have hints at in the scriptures, and I'm speaking mostly of Zenos and his allegory. The idea here is trees have roots where the nutrients they need are coming from. Trees must be connected to their roots, but on the other side of the tree is the fruit. Jesus is saying, you are the fruit. You are the fruit that the world is going to see. You are the ones that are going to gather. It's your fruit that will determine your eternal home. Where you end up will depend on the fruit you bring forth. But what he's saying here is there's no way you're going to bring forth good fruit until you are connected to the source of nutrients. Now think all the scriptures. Think Alma chapter 32, Zenos, Jacob chapter 5. And he talks about plucking sometimes. He talks about grafting sometimes. If I am not grafted into the vine of Christ, if he isn't the source of my nutrients, there is no way my fruit will be good fruit. I can be good for a while, but there is no way I will bring forth eternal good fruit until, in his language, I abide in him in the imagery of the tree. I have to be grafted into him. I have to splice my branch into the root of Christ in order to have access to the nutrients. Now, the one thing Alma adds in Alma 32 that I think he's trying to teach his disciples And this goes to our fourth theme of preparing them for the future. The heat of the sun is going to be scorching. If we are not connected to Christ, we lose the nutrients that are coming from the soil. And unfortunately, we see people's testimonies shrivel up because the power outside, the heat outside, and he's going to tell them, they're going to hate you. He will say later on in chapter 15, the world is going to hate you. That's the heat that's outside. And they're coming after you, and they're going to try and destroy your faith. You will survive if you have deep roots and you are connected through Christ into a nourishing system. Treasure the word and you'll be fine in the latter days. Be connected to Christ. Have Christ as a source of nutrients in your life, oil in your vessel again, 
And then what's coming up through the roots will be much more powerful than what's coming down from the heat of the sun. If what's outside, if the heat is greater than the nutrients coming in, I shrivel. If the nutrients coming in are greater than the heat outside, I will grow. That's how things grow in the desert where there's so much heat. They are connected to a source of nutrients. Let me just connect the word of wisdom here as something that was said in the word of wisdom. If we take care of our bodies, we will have health in our navels. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? If I take care of my body, I will have health in my navel. I believe the suggestion here is I still have a spiritual umbilical cord. And that's how the nutrients come into this tree of my body. If I take care of my physical body, the nutrients will flow. If I don't take care of my physical body, I kink that umbilical cord to heaven. Jesus is saying with all the turmoil that's coming into their lives and into ours, if you are not connected to Christ, you have severed the fruit from the roots and pretty soon the heat on the outside is going to scorch you. But as long as you are connected to Christ, and in their day, he was saying, even though I'm going away, if you maintain this personal relationship with me, then you will be connected to the roots. And what's flowing up from the roots will be ever more powerful than what's coming down from the heat of the sun. This is a major message to all of us in our day because the heat is exhausting and it is crippling unless you are tied to the vine. Now, there's another image. So the image of him being the vine, he is the space between the roots and the fruit. But he is also the builder. He's the builder of the tree. He's the builder of the mansions. So going back one chapter to chapter 14, he starts in the very beginning in verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to build one for you. I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, let me tell you how you're going to get there. Jesus says in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. So then after he talks about this, Thomas asks the question, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus' response is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, in my opinion, a lot of the discourse in John 14, 15, and 16 is answering that question. How can I know the way? And there's lots of ways to read it. I think in traditional Christianity... It's either heaven or hell, and Jesus is saying, this is how you go to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and they, they make it pretty simple. At a basic level, in my Father's house are many mansions. You know, a lot of people look at this as there's plenty of room for everybody who chooses Jesus. And I look at that, and I say, okay, that's good. 
and it's a really oversimplification of the whole process as well. I think so. I think at least the, as I read it. So this idea of many mansions, Monai Palai, in John 14, 2, could be interpreted in many different ways. You see, in the context of what is called Hecalot literature in the apocalyptic tradition, there is this idea of many mansions seen as stopping places between the visionary and the temple in the sky where God is, that there is a temple in heaven and there is one on earth, and a visionary will ascend from the temple on earth to the temple in heaven, and they will go into many different stopping places or rooms along the ascent to the ultimate goal of experiencing the divine presence. The Hecalot tradition is a genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature that emerged in the time period after the destruction of the first Israelite temple. And it proceeded through the centuries into the time period of Jesus and his followers and beyond. This type of literature focuses on heavenly journeys of visionary mystics or prophets who seek to ascend and come into the divine presence. Classic example, 1 Nephi chapter 1. Another one, Isaiah chapter 6. Here's a third example, the book of Revelation. Here's another one, the first vision of Joseph Smith, whether in my body or out. Remember when he comes to himself, he's lying on his back. The first vision could be read as an ascent into God's presence, especially if you read the first vision in the context of all the historical accounts and you put them all together. An interesting article that talks about the first vision as an ascent, there's a great article, we'll reference this in the show notes, by Don Bradley in August of 2019 about the Joseph Smith's first vision as an esoteric endowment. You see, that's how I read the first vision. And I read Jesus's discussion right here in these chapters in line with those, sitting in that tradition, that Jesus is explaining that in my father's house are monae poli, this idea that there's many rooms or another way to read this is that there are many stopping places along the way to the divine throne. Each level or mansion along the way represents a new stage in the spiritual journey with its unique challenges and rewards. These mansions, as it were, or spaces or stopping places could be seen as places where the individual who's making the ascent can stop for rest and refreshment. They could pause and they could reflect on their journey that they're taking spiritually before they go to the next state. One commentator said this, if you were to ask a first century Jew or Christian where God dwells, they would undoubtedly respond, well, that's obvious. God dwells in his temple in the sky. <laughs> now, the vast majority of Christians today have lost an understanding of the mythos of the celestial temple, even though it is literally central to the whole biblical tradition. It's throughout the entire Old Testament, and it's central here to the Gospel of John. This idea, the mythos of the story of there being a temple on earth and a temple in heaven is everywhere. I mean, a couple examples. Psalm 11, verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. Likewise, the psalmist wrote, God has looked down from the height of his holy place or his temple from heaven. Yahweh beholds the earth. That's Psalm 102 verse 19. The clear idea behind passages like these and other related passages is that God dwells in a temple in heaven. That's William Hamblin's commentary, and I totally see it this way. And so the question that they're asking is, how am I to know the way 
And Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You come unto the Father through me or by me. Now we're going to see this later when we get into the crucifixion narrative, that when his spirit leaves his body, at least in the Mark account, that word that Mark uses when the veil is torn, that word for schizo is the same word that he's using when the heavens opened in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus is baptized and the voice of the Father proceeds from the heavens through the heavens to earth, Mark essentially uses that word schizo, and that's the same word we're going to read at the end of Mark when Jesus dies and the veil is rent. Jesus is the door. He is the veil. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, where Paul says, or whoever wrote Hebrews, that the veil is the flesh of Jesus. So when he says, I am the way, or as he says also in John, I am the door of the sheep, that's the veil. So I come to the Father through Monopoli, many, many stopping places on the ascent through Jesus. He's the way. He's the way. I mean... There is no other way or, or name or means whereby salvation comes only through Jesus of Nazareth. I really do believe that this is his invitation for us to understand that it's an ascent. Joseph Smith will say, it's going to take some time. And there's lots of different stopping places or rooms for people to go where they will be happy. And so because there's no other way, name, or means, he is the anointed one to make it so we can be anointed, so we can come into the presence of the Father. Now, let me play on a different word. I like Mike playing on the word mansion. There's many mansions. I'm going to read it a little bit differently, and I'm going to show you a scripture chain that's teaching the same idea. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is preparing a place in the Father's kingdom. And the way I inherit that place, verse 6 of John 14, I am the way, says Jesus. I am the way for you to inherit one of the Father's places. Now, let me show you a fascinating scripture chain, which I've done in other podcasts, so bear with the repetition, but I think it really plays here. Let me show you an New Testament, Old Testament, Book of Mormon, and Doctrine and Covenants chain. I want to start in the New Testament, since that's where we're at. In Acts chapter 1, verse 25, Judas Iscariot, after he commits suicide, he fell by transgression that he might go to his own place. Now, let me take you back to the Old Testament, but I'm really taking you forward to the Book of Mormon. In Jacob chapter 5, we have Zenos's allegory. Now, Zenos was an Old Testament prophet. So way back in the Old Testament, at the very end of Zenos's allegory, all this effort to save the tree and have it bring forth good fruit. But where does the bad fruit go in the very end? The vines that will not produce good fruit. If you go to the very last verse of Jacob 5, verse 77, the bad will I cast into its own place. Now, Book of Mormon, Jacob chapter 6, Jacob read this entire allegory. He just put it on the record. And then in chapter 6, he comments on it. And of all the things that caught his attention, Jacob 6, verse 3, what caught his attention is how cursed are they who shall be cast out into their own place. How dumb to end up in your own place. That was his commentary. 
Now, fast forward to the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 88 talks about the different resurrections. Verse 29, it talks about the resurrection of celestial, 30 terrestrial, 31 telestial. Now, everyone else that got a body will be resurrected. These are the sons of perdition. Verse 32, they who remain, so these are the sons of perdition who got a body. They who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place. Now listen, to enjoy that which they are willing to receive, because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. Now, he's going to clue us in as to what they rejected, verse 33. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Starting to unlock this idea. You rejected Christ, and he is the way. Therefore, you can't go to his place. You go to your place. That's what these all have in common. Let's do one more. Section 88, verse 114. Where will Satan and those who followed him in premortal life end up? Beautiful description in verse 114. And then cometh the battle of the great God, and the devil and his army shall be cast away into their own place. So what Jesus is teaching is, if you want to live your way, if you insist on living your way, your reward is your own place. You cannot have a place in the Father's mansion if you don't live the Father's way. Your eternal reward will be whatever place you can make for yourself. C.S. Lewis powerfully stated it this way in The Great Divorce. There are, in the end, only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. Now, the degree to which you follow His will and follow Jesus. Now, in Mike's description of an ascent, there are off-ramps. And if you so choose, you can get off one of those off-ramps and choose a different place, but still in the Father's because you found Christ. But if you follow Christ all the way, He will take you to the Father's place. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach. I am the way that will lead to the place. So that's our second theme. Jesus met with them right before Gethsemane. He's not going to have an opportunity to teach them again, and he needs them to understand his role. He is the vine. He is the way, and they're never going to succeed in where they need to go, nor will we, unless we abide in him and follow his way. So there's theme number two. Now, theme number three was a major deal to John. It will dominate his epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. It will be the main topic that John writes about pretty much for the rest of his life. There are two great commandments. Jesus had taught that on Tuesday powerfully. The first and the great commandment is to love God, and the second is to love my neighbor. 
in this Last Supper, Jesus is going to teach those two loves. Go through 13 through 17, including the intercessory prayer that we covered last week, and everything you find that has anything to do with love or a manifestation of love, you may want to highlight in a specific color. You'll be amazed at all that Jesus says. Now, we can't cover it all, but I do want to point out that what I think John saw is the fruit of love. Two major ideas come in the Last Supper, that loving God is manifested in keeping His commandments. He will say repeatedly things like John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how you manifest the love of God, is keeping his commandments. And then he will say that the manifestation of love of neighbor is service. And we need to love them and serve them as Jesus loved and served them. That leads us to one of the absolute most beautiful moments of his whole ministry. It is astounding to think about what the God of the universe is about to do. He is about to go into Gethsemane and conquer sin and death. He is king of the universe. He has already entered the city to a triumphal entrance. And now he grabs a bowl and a washcloth, and he washes their feet. It is so symbolic of love of neighbor as well as love of God at the same time. In John 13, we read the following, that after supper, Jesus laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. And then came he to Peter, and this is John 13, verse 6, and Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash all of me. If I have to be washed to have part of you, essentially, Peter is saying, well, then wash all of me. Now, the washing of the feet was a common thing in this culture. Specifically, slaves would do this. One scholar wrote, people often wash their feet when they return home. Washing one's feet was common enough that unwashed feet became proverbial in some places for not being prepared. The face, hands, and feet seemed to have been the most critical parts of the body to wash. Hospitality included providing water for guests to wash their feet or providing a servant to wash their feet. Only a document honoring a host's extreme humility would ever portray that host honoring an esteemed visitor by washing his feet himself. What Jesus is doing essentially is he's taking the role of a slave and he's getting down and humbling himself and washing their feet to show his extreme humility. And I like how Bryce is tying this into showing love. Now, 
these men had been walking in the streets, and let's just say it like it was, the streets probably weren't the best. Washing their feet would have been a menial task. And so essentially by Jesus getting down to this level and washing their feet, he's putting himself in the position of servant. So then after he does this, look what he says. Ye are not all clean. That's verse 11. So after he washed their feet and took his garments, which were set down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am, understatement. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. I think that's the message. And I love how he continues, Mike. I want to read the next verse. I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are if ye do them. So love one another as I have loved you. Now, let me point out that in the rest of chapter 13, he calls that a new commandment. Notice verse 34, a new commandment. I give unto you, that you shall love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. So speaking of love of neighbor, I'm going to kick it up a notch. If the new commandment is to love each other the way Jesus loves them, then what's the old commandment? Remember how he said that the first commandment was to love God with all your heart, might, might, and strength, and then the second was to love my neighbor as myself. Now, if I thought about my neighbor's hunger as often as I thought about my own hunger, I'd be a great neighbor. That was a pretty high level of love. But Jesus now kicked that up a notch. The new standard of love is how would Christ treat this person? And I must love them at that level, or at least do all that I can to try. I don't know that we're ever going to achieve it in this life. That is the new standard of love. He says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. The measure of discipleship is not scripture knowledge even though we sometimes think it is. The measure of discipleship is not what callings you've held, even though we sometimes think it is. The measure of discipleship is not how many missions you served or how much tithing you pay. The measure of discipleship from his own lips is how close does your love of your neighbor match Christ's love of that same neighbor? That's what we need to be talking about. That's Christianity. You want to boil down Christianity to a handful of verses? I think those two are good candidates for being the very essence of Christianity. Ponder that this week. Now, I love this quotation from Leslie Weatherhead, who was a prominent English Christian author in London. He wrote in one of his books, When I am tempted to listen to hot, egotistic voices within my own heart, when it seems that love can never win but always loses, 
When it seems as though humility is ruthlessly trodden down by those who pass over it on their own way to their own selfish ambitions, when it seems as though God cannot possibly triumph, when pity and love and mercy and kindness and tenderness are weakness, when it seems as though greatness is only possessed by those who know how to grab and have all the power to snatch at it, no matter what the cost to others, I, yes, when the voices sound in my own heart which say, you must play for your own hand, you must think of number one, you must not let yourself be trodden down. When I am thus tempted, may I hear in my imagination the tinkling of water poured into a basin and see as in a vision the Son of God washing the disciples' feet. Now, are you or are you not his disciple? You will manifest it by loving your neighbor the way he loves your neighbor. You know, Bryce, back to that theme of ascent and these chapters being an answer to Thomas's question, Lord, how do we get to where you're going? And I really see the common answer in all these chapters being love. If we love one another, if we love Jesus, if we love our fellow man, that attitude is going to fix a lot of our problems, a lot of our weakness. We give each other grace. We forgive. We follow Jesus in that sense of loving that we can actually fulfill the phrase that Jesus says in John 17, in verse 24, he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. You see, even before the foundation of the world in the pre-earth life, the Father loved the Son, and we are to emulate this. And as we do this, we will be with him where he is. He is going to ascend. And that's Thomas's question. How am I going to know the way? These chapters are answering that question. And over and over again, that theme just keeps popping up again and again. Now, the next chapter, John 14, he moves on to the theme of love of God. So he says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Then in the next verse, Judas responds, not Judas Iscariot, another Judas. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And he answered, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come into him and make our abode with him. It all has to do with obedience as an act of love. If you love God, you will obey him. And then I love the last verse of John 14. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Let's go to Gethsemane. Your love of God is manifest by your own Gethsemane. 
your own act of obedience, even when you don't want to. Remember, he's going to say, is there another way? Can, can this cup pass? No, it can't. Okay, then this is how I manifest my love to my Father. You manifest your love to others by loving them the way Jesus loves them, and you manifest your love of the Father by arising and doing what he's asked you to do. Watch them come together in chapter 15. He talks about that he is the vine and we need to abide in him. And then in verse 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Love of God. Now, verse 12, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Can I tweak that a little bit? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man spends his life in the service of his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. And then one more time, to make sure we don't miss it. Verse 17 of John 15, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Pretty plain. I mean, I don't know how you can read these chapters and not see Jesus talking about this. That's theme number three, the two loves. So we've done comfort and comforter. We've done role of the Messiah. We've done the two loves. Now go back and notice how many things he's saying that's going to prepare them, not just for tonight, but prepare them for the days and the years ahead. Let me just highlight a few. In John chapter 13, verse 19, now I tell you before it come, that when it is come, ye may believe that I am he. I think he's trying to say, tribulation's coming. And so are the blessings. And remember that I told you and that I'm going to help you. Bryce, before you leave 19, I just have to call this out. I mean, look what it says. You have the, the word he italicized. So he's saying, I am. In other words, he's invoking once again the divine name. This is Jesus plainly saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am. Yeah. I am. Another one, verse 33, little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, and he gives the commandment, a new commandment. In other words, I'm leaving. You need to be prepared for life without me. I'm leaving. And the way you live life without me is that commandment to love one another. In the next chapter, John 14, verse 28, I go away and come again unto you. And verse 29, now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye may believe. Then he gets into chapter 15. He says, look, I need you to know what's gonna happen. Verse 18, if the world hates you, and maybe we could word that a little bit different. Maybe what he really said was, the world is going to hate you, no if about it but know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. 
but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Remember the word that I sent unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours. Be prepared. You see how he's just trying to be prepared? It's interesting that Joseph Smith was surprised by the opposition that came. Do you remember after the first vision, he's having a conversation with one of the ministers? He was surprised by his response. We shouldn't be surprised. The world is going to hate us if we follow Christ. Be prepared for that because he's not going to hate us and he's going to be with us. Verse 5 of chapter 16, now I go my way to him that sent me. None of you asketh me whether thou goest. That's when he talks about sending them the Spirit. Verse 16, a little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Verse 20, verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sh sorrow shall be turned into joy. And then he talks about the woman in travail who has sorrow. But the moment she's handed that baby, she remembereth not her anguish. He's preparing them for what's ahead. Verse 28, I leave the world and go to the Father. Verse 32, behold, the hour cometh, yea, and is now come that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So then he turns that very blessing onto them. These things I have spoken unto you, that ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. If you go to John 16, we read verse 2, they'll put you out of the synagogues and the time will come that whoever kills you will think that they're actually doing God a service and these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. And so he does kind of tell them that they're going to be killed. Later, we'll read about in the book of Acts, prominent members of the church that are killed where these verses are fulfilled. One of them we'll read about in the book of Acts, and his name is Stephen. Another one is James, the brother of Jesus. There was a Roman persecution of Christians, and as I've studied history, I have more questions than answers, and I've read conflicting accounts. And so I'm not really dogmatic on a lot of these ideas other than to acknowledge that the early Christians were persecuted, and there were severe tensions between the Jews and the Christians, especially after 70 AD. After the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, there was a strong invective against the Jews. And the early Christians, we have to remember, they were Jews. So before 70 AD, the Christians and the Jews would go to synagogue together, but they would just read it differently. They would read the text differently. The Christians would look at the text that they read as pointing to Jesus. And the Jews who didn't know of Jesus or didn't believe in Jesus didn't read it that way. But after 70 AD, there was a schism 
or a separation between the Christians and the Jews, and there was some animosity. And according to some historians, there are some that say that Jews did kill Christians whenever they were able. Uh, Now, it depends on what report you read. There were exaggerated reports on both sides between Jews and Christians. And one historian writes, hyperbole was a regular feature of the attack and invective, generally from both sides. Some non-Christian Jews actually protected Christians during the Roman persecutions. And so, you know, just like anything, it's complicated. But there was some animosity. There were some Jews that attacked Christians, and there was some Roman persecution. Now, I think all sides could conclude and say there was some persecution. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think we can conclude that in the first century, there was some enmity between the Jews and the Christians. Clearly, Christ is crucified. The biblical record, at least what we have canonized, shows us that some of the early followers of Jesus, at least the prominent ones, were killed. In our day, in the last dispensation of the fullness of times, if you just look at the record historically, I think both sides can conclude that the saints were kicked out of Missouri. We had our homes burned. We were kicked out of Nauvoo. There was a war. They brought in cannons and executed cannon fire on the saints. They were forcibly taken from their homes and lands. It was a rough time in our dispensation. And today we live in cancel culture, where even religion today is considered hate speech. Gratefully, we have this really awesome thing called the Constitution, which says things like, you know what, Bryce and Mike, you can have a podcast and talk about Jesus, and that's going to be okay. But I do know that we live in a world today where maybe they're not literally killed, but modern prophets are canceled and attacked daily. I mean, we really do see this. And so Jesus is just preparing his people in this context at this time. But as I read John, I say it applies to us today as well. The saints aren't being killed today. I'm acknowledging that. But I am also saying that there is this strong invective against the Latter-day Saints today, some even within the Christian community. And as followers of Jesus, we just have to be prepared for this. And we just have to square our shoulders to it, focus on the Savior, and move forward. And I think that preparation is important. And I think it would have been so impactful. If we were sitting there in that room after the supper and after Jesus had washed our feet and we looked at this man and felt his holiness and his love, it would have been a great strength to them to prepare them for what I would say would be one of the most difficult nights of their life. Yep. Now, after they leave the upper room where they hold the Last Supper, they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. For Latter-day Saints, the Garden of Gethsemane is the greatest victory of Christ. Many Christians see it as the cross. What he did on the cross is what they see as his culminating victory, his suffering on the cross, which is why the cross of Christianity is such a symbol of faith. But for Latter-day Saints, it's the events of the Garden, and we speak about these events with great reverence. One of the great insights of my life in how to pray, I learned from the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus utters two prayers. Now, we need to combine Matthew and Luke's accounts. Matthew doesn't tell us what happens in between the two prayers, and Luke doesn't give us the second prayer. So, we kind of need to combine them. So, Matthew chapter 26 and Luke chapter 22. In Matthew 26, 39, he utters the first prayer. 
O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, Jesus always had that condition that he was going to do the Father's will. But the basic prayer here is change my circumstances. Jesus was praying that the cup be removed. And if it's good enough for the Savior, it's good enough for me. I don't think there's any problem with Latter-day Saints or anyone praying that the cup be removed. Lord, change my circumstances. Take the pain away. Solve the problem. Help me find a job. Help me find a friend or an eternal companion. Change my circumstances. That was what he prayed first. Now we turn to Luke to get what happened after that first prayer. In Luke 22, verse 41 is where we find that prayer. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thine be done. Now, Luke twenty-two forty-three tells us that after that first prayer, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. The answer was, this is not going to go away. The cup is not going to be removed. That's what the angel was sent to say. I'm going to strengthen you, but I'm not going to remove the cup. So now listen to prayer number two. Listen to the tone and the acceptance and the humility of prayer number two. Back in Matthew 26, verse 42, he went again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Notice a complete acceptance that the cup is not going to go away. My circumstances are not going to change. My mother that I'm praying for is not going to get better. The cancer is not going to be healed. The financial aid is not going to come immediately. The circumstances are not going to change. So notice the implied second prayer is change me. If this cup isn't going to go away, then strengthen me to drink it. Do you see the difference between those two prayers? Prayer number one is, change my circumstances. And then Jesus says, but if that's not going to happen, change me. So how often do we pray that the Savior would change our circumstances? We ought to throw in that second, but if not, because he might, he might change our circumstances, but we ought to throw in that second prayer. If you're not going to change my circumstances, if the cup isn't going to be removed, then give me the strength to drink it. And he did. I love that moment in the garden. One more great insight from Luke's account. It says that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground before him. Now, we have this beautiful addition in modern scripture that allows us to understand a little bit more what was going on. The angel who spoke to King Benjamin explained that, and he said in Mosiah 3, 7, Lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be to death. 
For blood cometh from every poor, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abomination of his people. A mortal being could not have endured that. The pain would have shut his body down. But because he was part immortal and could not die, he was able to endure that agony in such a way that blood came from every pore, so great was his anguish for the wickedness and the abomination of his people. Now, those are some of the great events that happen in the garden. After his atoning sacrifice, however that occurred in that one night, he stood up and he was ready for the arresting party, which we talked about last week. So now let's take a look at the doctrine. What did he accomplish? What did he do? And why is it so significant? And we're going to need to turn to modern scriptures. You cannot fully teach the doctrine of the atonement without turning to the Book of Mormon. So I know this is a New Testament podcast, but we will need to turn to restored scriptures to understand the doctrine. I want to start in 2 Nephi chapter 2 with Father Lehi explaining why he needed to atone. 2 Nephi chapter 2 verse 7, Lehi says, He offereth himself a sacrifice for sin. Now, everyone who loves Jesus knows that. We know he offered himself a sacrifice for sin, but notice the next word in the Book of Mormon is to. In other words, this is what he accomplished. He offered himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. In other words, our Heavenly Father obeys law. That is the great secret to understanding why we need a Redeemer and an atonement, because our Heavenly Father can't just brush aside sin and forget it. He obeys law. And where there is a violation of law, there must be someone who answers the ends of the law. Either we answer that end, or he answers that end. So he answered the ends of the law so that we don't have to. So I would ask, what does the law require? In Mosiah chapter 2, King Benjamin is addressing that very concept, and he reveals two things that the law requires for transgression. The first one is in verse 38, Mosiah chapter 2, verse 38. Therefore, if that man repenteth not, and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice do awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt. There it is. The law demands a payment of guilt. And may I suggest that this is not, oh, I stole a candy bar for the store and I feel guilty for doing so. No, no, no. This is a payment of guilt that would come someday without an atoning sacrifice. And listen to one man's guilt. Verse 38 continues and describes that one man's payment. Without him answering the ends of the law, this is what I would owe to the demands of justice which doth cause him to shrink from the presence of the Lord and to fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, 
which is like an unquenchable fire whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. That's one man's payment for guilt. You get another description in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 25, where he says, If they be evil, they are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abominations, which doth cause them to shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment, from whence no man can more return. Therefore, they have drunk damnation to their own souls. That is what justice demands. Now, Jesus is going to answer all of that to an infinite level. When the Book of Mormon presents the idea of atonement, it uses the word infinite. There are no limits. I can't even comprehend an infinite payment of guilt. If one man's guilt would make that man shrink in a state of misery and endless torment, what would an infinite level of guilt cost? Now, that's the payment. He has to answer what the law demands to an infinite level. Now, I don't like to spend my time pondering what he suffered as much as I like to ponder what he bought. If answering the ends of the law, if paying an infinite guilt was the price he paid, what did he purchase? By answering the ends of the law, what can now Jesus do? And this is now perhaps one of the most beautiful verses of Scripture in the Book of Mormon and might possibly be one of the greatest contributions of the Restoration. In Moroni chapter 7, in this beautiful chapter where Mormon is writing to his son about faith, hope, and charity, we have this incredible verse, Moroni 7.27. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of God to claim of the Father his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men. That's what he bought, the rights of mercy. That is so beautifully stated in the Book of Mormon. He claimed of the Father his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men. Now read verse 28. You can't tell me Joseph Smith wrote this. He now connects Moroni 7 way back to 2 Nephi chapter 2 and Father Lehi. For he hath answered the ends of the law and claimeth all those who have faith in him. Jesus owns infinite rights of mercy. That is a powerful concept, and that is our doctrine. So when we speak of infinity, you could speak of both breadth and depth. Let me do that with rights of mercy. Let's talk about his breadth. To how many people can Christ extend mercy? How broad are his rights of mercy? How many people can he save? And the answer is obvious, an infinite number. There is no limit. There is no one he can't save. If Heavenly Father had had one more world, 
or a million more worlds. It wouldn't have changed anything because he paid an infinite penalty and has infinite rights of mercy and can save an infinite breadth of people. Now, how about depth? How many sins of an individual could he cleanse? How much mercy could he give an individual person? There are no limits. If there are limits, it's because of our ability to repent, not because of his rights of mercy. Jesus has infinite rights of mercy, which he purchased. I mean, to use the New Testament phrase, he's a 10,000-talent God. He is a 10,000-talent God. He can waive everyone's 10,000-talent debt, and it wouldn't even be a stretch of his limits. So there's some beautiful phrases in the Book of Mormon I really like to point out. I love what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's call themselves. In Alma chapter 24, verse 11, they call themselves the most lost of all mankind. Can his rights of mercy extend down even to the most lost of all mankind? In Mosiah chapter 28, it calls Alma and Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni the very vilest of sinners. Can his rights of mercy extend to the very vilest of sinners? He bought that right. So there's number one. Now let me do number two. What else does justice demand of sin? Returning back to King Benjamin's address in Mosiah chapter 2, this time in verse 36, justice demands that when you transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, ye do withdraw yourself from the Spirit of the Lord. Justice demands that I depart from him, that I withdraw from him, that we separate, that Jesus be separate from me. He cannot dwell in unclean tabernacles. So if that's a demand of justice, then that is something Jesus has to answer. He has to answer the ends of the law. He has to be infinitely separated from God. Now, I don't think the guilt even came close to comparing in pain to this one. Jesus was infinitely separated from God, as if he had been abandoned, as if he lost all trace of the Father's presence, something he had never known. He had never been severed from the Father. I suppose this was the moment he stood up on the nails and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was infinitely alone, abandoned into an abyss like he had never known. Now again, not to dwell on the pain, but asking ourselves, what did he buy? The right to end that separation when he chooses. That doesn't mean he's always with me. I need that separation to motivate my repentance. But Jesus has bought the right to rush back into my life any sign of repentance I give him. He does not wait till justice gives him the all-clear signal. Now think about how that affects my repentance. I don't repent and then get Jesus. The first sign of repentance, he rushes back into my life and helps me repent. He bought the right to be with me. 
Let me point out a fascinating word that appears only in the Book of Mormon in terms of Scripture. We find it used by both Alma and Ammon. Let me give you Alma's version of it. In Mosiah chapter 27, as Alma describes his repentance and coming to Christ, he uses a fascinating word, Mosiah 27, 28, and 29. Nevertheless, after waiting through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, the Lord in mercy hath seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burning. That's the right that he bought. He can snatch us. He can come into my life anytime he wants. And if justice would ordinarily say, no, 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 there needs to be a separation, he has paid that right and meets that demand so that there doesn't have to be a separation. And he chooses to snatch me at any sign of repentance. Verse 29, my soul hath been redeemed from the gall of bitterness and bonds of iniquity. I was in the darkest abyss, but now I behold the marvelous light of God. My soul was racked with eternal torment, but I am snatched, and my soul is pained no more. That's a beautiful concept. Now, that was Alma. Let's do Ammon's version of that in the book of Alma, verse 26, where Ammon is rejoicing in the goodness of God in his life. Ammon says, Therefore, let us glory, yea, we will glory in the Lord, yea, we will rejoice, for our joy is full, yea, we will praise our God forever. Behold, who can glory too much in the Lord? Who can say too much of his great power and of his mercy and his long-suffering towards the children of man? Behold, I say unto you, I cannot say the smallest part which I feel. Who could have supposed that our God would have been so merciful as to have snatched us from our awful and sinful and polluted state? That's what he bought. So when Alma was repenting, when Alma was Oh, Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me. Now, I suppose Justice would probably have said, uh, he's nowhere ready to be reunited with you. But he paid that price and can snatch Alma and Ammon and you and all of us. Now, just to be complete, I know we've talked about this many times, but I think we need to address it in the Doctrine of the Atonement. There were other pains he suffered, maybe not required for transgression, but other pains nevertheless. And the Book of Mormon teaches us in Alma chapter 7, Alma teaches the people of Gideon in verse 11, he shall go forth suffering pains, afflictions, and temptations of every kind, meaning Jesus's pain was infinite in breadth and infinite in depth. The Savior had to experience the totality of our mortal condition. Every pain, every breadth of pain. And he took each one of them to an infinite level. He was in that pain for an infinite amount of time. So take, for example, the breaking of an arm. How many ways has Jesus broken his arm? Every single possible way, an infinite variety of breaks. 
and he experienced each one of them, I would suggest not for a brief moment, but for an infinite amount of time. He dealt with that break for an infinite amount of time. He knows that pain infinitely. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He's been harmed in every single possible way. He knows every human pain. The next word is affliction. Think of something that afflicts someone you love. How about depression? How depressed has Jesus been? And how many varieties of depression has he experienced? Every single one of them. And to what depth? We use the word temptation. How tempted has he been? How much variety of temptation? And how long did that temptation last? Not a brief moment, but in eternity. Another word in verse 11 is sickness. Physical, emotional, mental, every sickness. Verse 12, he will take upon him death. How many ways has Jesus died? He knows COVID. He knows cancer. He knows suffocation and drowning. He knows every possible way to die. And the last word is infirmities. As part of the atonement, he took upon himself the whole human experience. He has suffered every possible challenge that any human ever suffers, and he did so a lot longer than they did. Now, what did he buy? Alma mentions one. I don't think this is the only one, but Alma mentions one. The end of verse 12, back in Alma 7, verse 12, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. He knows how to succor. He knows how to comfort. But I would add a whole lot more. He knows how to judge. He knows how to save. He knows which of those human experiences I need for my benefit. He is our infinite Redeemer. He paid the price to save us, and He knows the human experience and can walk us through it. And I think that's why Lehi concludes, Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh and taketh it again by the power of the Spirit, that he may bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, being the first that should rise. So let's celebrate as we study these final days of the Savior. Let's celebrate his victory. And let's understand and teach and share with everyone the doctrine of the atonement. That's good. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the word and kind of, you know, how it's used in the text of the New Testament. Now, the word atonement does not pop up a ton. This is what Romans 5.11 says. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Often the word atonement is translated as reconciliation, which is to sit again with. And I really like that definition because in the Greek, katalage is this idea of sitting again 
at an exchange. In the Greek, the way it's used in antiquity is this idea of we're settling the books. I'm meeting, I'm sitting down with Bryce, we're squaring up the money. Uh, I owe him money, I've got to square it up. And so in that context, that's how it can be read. That's why I think Jesus giving the illustration that he is a 10,000 talent God really communicates this idea to me that Jesus has enough money to cover my debts. And that image is kind of used in that in that word, katalage, which is the word used for the atonement. I also like reconciliation because I'm sitting again with someone. And so to portray this with a family, we sit again with that individual in our family that we had a difficult time with, and that's the prodigal son. The son comes home, and the father embraces him, and they eat. And that idea and image of an embrace is the Hebrew definition, that word for covering, to be covered, or to encircle you about in my wings, as it were. And this is really Nephi's experience. At the conclusion of First Nephi, kind of as a postscript, if you go to Second Nephi chapter 1, Nephi says, the Lord has redeemed my soul from hell, I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. That's a veil type scene. That's literally a type scene where Nephi has come through the veil, and like Isaiah, he sees the glory of God, and he's encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. He is covered by Christ. He is atoned. This embrace is the definition of an atonement. We see a similar promise to Oliver Cowdery. If you go to Doctrine and Covenant 6, verse 20, this is so interesting because in this section, this is where the Lord says in verse 18 to stand by Joseph. And if you do and you're faithful in whatever difficult circumstances arise, look what the Lord promises him at the end of verse 20. I will encircle you in the arms of my love. That's a beautiful promise given to Oliver Cowdery. Now, this thread continues in the Book of Mormon. I mean, if you go to 2 Nephi 4, verse 33, this is Nephi's psalm where he says, O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? And Mormon has this lament in Mormon chapter 5 where he's so sad that the Lamanites have been knuckleheads and they've departed from the way. And Mormon says in Mormon 5 verse 11, had the Lamanites repented, they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. And so really, the word itself is filled with this meaning. And so Alma does say that the embrace is the gift of the atonement. Look what he says. Mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety. While he that exercises no faith unto repentance, that person is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. That's kind of my paraphrasing of Alma 34 verse 16. So like all things, there's always a counterfeit. For example, if you go to Alma 36, in Alma 36, verse 18, it says, we read about being embraced by the everlasting chains of death. Another reference would be in Alma 5.7 or Alma 14.6, that the bands of death and the chains of hell encircle us. We see this in Alma 26, where they're encircled with everlasting darkness and destruction. 
And then Alma 12 talks about this idea of a snare that the adversary has to encircle you about with his chains, that he might chain you down to everlasting destruction. So we have, on the one hand, the atonement and the embrace, but if we reject it, then the other option is to go towards the counterfeit embrace. And so that's really one of the messages of the Book of Mormon is to encourage us to come into Christ, to partake of his atonement. There's so much more to this. And so we're going to put that in the show notes. But I want to just stand as a witness that in my life, I have felt the atonement. I have felt that embrace as I've tried to follow Jesus. I'm certainly far from perfect. And that's the beauty of it is even in my imperfection, like the individual that just had two talents, if I just try and I move forward, the Lord has the power to make up the difference. And of that I testify. Now that's his conquering over sin. What's left is his conquering over death. And that means he has to be crucified. And that's what we will do in our next podcast. Please know that Mike and I stand as witnesses that this man has conquered sin and death and can bring life and light into your life. He is the way. And if we follow him, we will find that embrace. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover Friday morning, the day when the Savior's crucified. And that will be found in Matthew 26 and 27, Luke 22 and 23, John 18 and 19, and Mark 15. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.